As we take a break from Genesis, I would turn your attention to our scripture reading this morning in Malachi 2, 1 through 9. It says, And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them, because you do not lay it to your heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this commandment to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should, be guarded, should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, that mosaic of uh, Malachi right there is a striking resemblance to Kyle just reading scripture there, isn't it? Now, for those of you uh, who don't know me, I'm uh, Jeremy, one of the pastors here, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to speak to you this morning, uh, both to give our pastor, Josh, uh, a break and to uh, preach the word. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would quiet our hearts this morning before you that we would, as your, this passage says this morning, stand in awe of your name. Lord, you are great. You are greatly to be praised. So God, I ask that um, this message, first of all, would, has been and con- will continue to be preached first to my own heart and then to each here. Lord, we pray that the, the power of the Holy Spirit would not only come upon the preaching of the word this morning, but on the hearing as well, that we might not sin against you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If I were to ask you, who is responsible for the nation's defense, what would you say? I'm imagining that most of you would probably say the military without giving it a second thought. But what if I were to tell you that while the military is primarily responsible for the nation's defense, in some form or fashion, all of us are ultimately responsible, whether or not we vote, whether and whom we vote for, perhaps will determine what kind of defense we will have. Recently, I finished a book entitled The Kill Chain, Defending America in the Future of High-Tech Warfare. 
In the book, the author, Christian Brose, a former staff director for the Senate Armed Services Committee and uh, policy advisor to the late Senator John McCain, makes the case that other near-peer competitors like China have closed the U.S. military's dominance gap. They've invested in, in better, more lethal, cheaper, and re reproducible military technologies than we have. And he makes the case, in addition, that should we continue with business as usual, investing in the same platforms, relying on the same dwindling defense companies, with congressmen making the case to keep the same now-dated platforms so that the factory that produces them in their home state, in their voting district, if all of that remains the same, then life as we know it will change significantly. The relative peace that we have enjoyed since the end of the Cold War will inevitably come to an end. Can you imagine the chaos without a strong defense? But what if I told you that there is an even bigger problem than that? For a nation's defense matters little without an understanding of and a submission to the truth of God in his word. We can build the most impregnable defense, but unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Psalm 127, 1. We find in our text this morning a nation led by a group of ministerial guardians failing in their call to guard the knowledge of God. And as a result, spiritual chaos has descended upon the nation as surely as chaos would descend upon our country without a strong defense. And while the ministers are primarily responsible for guarding the knowledge of God, in some form or fashion, all of us are ultimately responsible. Unfortunately, irresponsibility when it comes to this matter is a problem still all too common in the world today. After all, guarding knowledge, heralding God's truth has become a rather unpopular, perhaps even uncomfortable business. It's no wonder that Paul warns in 2 Timothy 4, Verses 3 and 4, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Having itching ears will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myth. At its heart, failing to endure sound teaching has as its root a desire to put oneself over and above the word of God as its judge rather than to put oneself under and below the word of God as its judge over us. Now, if the stakes were not all that high, perhaps we could entertain little thought regarding the necessity, regarding the centrality of the truth of God in his word. That is, however, not the case. For our eternal souls, the trajectory of we as a people, and dare I say, even the purpose of our lives, 
will remain unrealized should we neglect so great a salvation. Salvation is at stake. The nation's trajectory is at stake, which means that all of us have work to do. The priests in our passage had work to do, a work described in the main idea of our text this morning, and that is to give honor to God by guarding knowledge and leading others into God's truth or be cursed. Beginning in verse 1, Malachi keeps with the same subjects that he had in chapter 1, saying, and now, O priests, this command is for you. He's going to continue to admonish the priests for failing to offer worthy worship and preserve truth. You ever wonder if you're at the right church? If your pastor is doing the right thing? Well, by God's grace, this passage will tell us what to look for. But it goes even further than that. For all New Testament Christians are called to the priesthood the priesthood of all believers. And just as all of us are ultimately responsible for our nation's defense, so are all of us who are claiming to be in Christ, to be Christian, are responsible to give honor to God by guarding knowledge and leading others into God's truth. So even if I use words like minister, pastor, or priest throughout our time together, know that all Christians have a responsibility to uphold this high calling. Some more than others, sure, but all of us have this responsibility. But again, it goes even further than what Christians should do to what non-Christians should expect Christians to do. Now, for those of you who are not necessarily claiming to be Christian, you should expect from Christians. You should expect from the church for them to herald and uphold the truth of God and His Word. In other words, you should expect Christians to put their money where their mouths are, being doers of the Word and not hearers only. Now, we will confess to you, we will not always exhibit that. In fact, we will exhibit some forms of hypocrisy, sin, and error in our lives. And yet we must strive to honor God by hearing, doing, and sharing God's word by God's help. Which brings us to our first point this morning in verses 2 through 6, and that is that ministers, all of us, should give honor to God's name. That much is evident from verse 2, but should ministers fail in this regard, we see in verses 2 and 3 that God warns unfaithful ministers of his discipline. He says, if you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart, because they merely went through the motions of worship, saying and doing all the right things in a wearisome, unaffected sort of way as seen in the previous chapter, because they did not take to heart the significance of what they were doing in leading others in the worship of God, God curses their blessings. In other words, he's giving back to them what their hearts truly offered him, the curse. 
I want you to notice it's not just a curse, but it is the curse. It is the curse found in Deuteronomy 28, verse 20. The curse of confusion and frustration, futility, and all that they undertook to do until they are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of their deeds because they have forsaken me, God says. You see, God is after his people's hearts. He's after, as one commentator states, the the command center of a person's life where, where plans and decisions are made, where knowledge is collected and considered that determine the direction of one's life. Now, this idea of the heart isn't merely about our feelings or a Disney-esque, follow-your-heart, self-serving notion. God is after our very reason. He is after our very allegiance. He's seeking to arrest our attention. But these priests are unimpressed by the glory of God and their high calling to lead others in the worship of God. And so they're cursed. Sometimes I think it's difficult for us to see the correlation between our unfaithfulness and the misfortunes that we experience as a result. Now, that's not to say that every misfortune is a result of sin. No, far from it. But we see here the priest's failure to listen, to take to heart. Their duty to honor God rather than themselves results in misfortune. It results in punishment. It results in cursed, fruitless ministry. They needed God's strength to do God's work. Unfortunately, they relied on their own strength. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book, Preaching and Preachers, says that the most important ingredient in preaching is the unction or power of the Holy Spirit. The power in preaching gives the preacher clarity of thought and speech. This power, however, is not something that the preacher can conjure up. It's a gift of God. Unction is something that comes upon and takes hold of the preacher. And without this unction, without this power, ministry will be burdensome. I've experienced that in my life early on, relying in my own strength to do God's work. It was a burden, and it didn't bear fruit. And so Lloyd-Jones encourages us to do all that we can in terms of preparation, but that is not where we stop. We must pray for the unction, for the power of the Holy Spirit to come upon the work, whether we are in the pulpit we're in the pew. Lloyd-Jones then gives the example of Elijah building the altar, cutting the wood, preparing the sacrifice, and then praying that the fire would descend. In other words, the minister, the Christian, does all that he can to prepare, but does not forget the crucial step of asking God to bring the fire to bring the power that only comes from the Spirit of God. Otherwise, he who labors, labors in vain. Verse 3 says, Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. I want you to notice, first of all, that unfaithful ministry not only affects God, 
it not only affects the minister, it not only affects those being ministered to, but it says it affects the descendants of the minister. Generational curses come upon unfaithfulness. You might say that unfaithfulness begets unfaithfulness. If the tree is rotten, so shall its fruit be. God is going to rebuke. He's going to put a stop to such a ministry. Now, he may let it go on for a time and his long suffering, right? But it is going to die a slow death. I want you to look at the graphic language being used in the second part of verse 3. He, he says he spreads dung on their faces. He's comparing their worship to fecal matter because they offered him excrement, filth, waste. He will display such offerings on their faces. In other words, unfaithfulness will be evident. Now, what should have been on their faces? Well, according to Deuteronomy 6, God's word itself should have been on such prominent display. God's word should have been bound, it says, as frontlets between their eyes. In other words, God's word should have ever been before them, but they had turned away from his word, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, as 1 Timothy 4.1 would later warn. And so as a king would tell the palace guards to take an unfaithful servant a way to be bound, a way to be punished, so God tells these priests that they will be taken away with it because they considered their ministry a burden. God would relieve them of such a ministry by removing both they and their descendants from his service. And as he does, we see in verses 4, four through 6 that God reminds ministers of what faithful ministry looks like. He doesn't completely forsake the priesthood, remembering his covenant with them in verse 4, even though they, the priests, had forgotten it. In a manner of speaking, God says, though I will remove specific unfaithful ministers, I will not stop the ministry. I am a covenant-keeping God. I will preserve a remnant. And so he gives us the example here of Levi's faithfulness in verse 5. Levi represents the priesthood itself and its high calling. My covenant, he says, was with him, and it was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. In other words, God gave Levi, the Old Testament priestly representative, life and peace. We cannot understate this. We cannot understate this. The giving of life doesn't necessarily refer to length of days or quantity of life, but quality of life, of blessings abounding, peace, a contentment regardless of how much or how little God gives materially. Now, God keeps his covenant with Levi, which ultimately finds fulfillment in the New Testament priestly representative of Jesus Christ. In Jesus, we have life and peace. Jesus reminds us in John 10.10, 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Elsewhere in John 14.27, he says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. God keeps his covenant offering life and people and peace, excuse me, to his people 
through the sacrifice of his son Jesus, who becomes both the priest and the sacrifice. Brothers and sisters in Christ, he wants you to have a life of spiritual abundance. He imparts peace. And so I ask you this morning, do you know that peace? Are you casting all your cares upon him because he cares for you? Or are you keeping them for yourself? Are you deciding that you cannot trust God with your life? That he can't take care of them somehow? God gives his people peaceful, abundant living. Even amidst chaos, even amidst storms, he brings this for us. He goes on in verse 5 to say, It was a covenant of fear, and he, that is Levi, feared me. He stood in awe of my name. Now, the glory of God was so evident that Levi was in awe of it. And in turn, it affected his behavior. It affected his life. He knew his, his place of subordination under God, rather as the supervisor of his own life. He trusted the perfect one to lead him through an imperfect world. That's reverence, friends. He continues in verse 6 to say, True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. Here we see three characteristics of a faithful minister, of any Christian, really. Number one, a faithful minister studies and speaks truth. Number two, a faithful minister exemplifies peaceful, holy living. And number three, through studying and speaking truth and exemplifying peaceful, holy living, a faithful minister leads others into the same. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, God uses him as an instrument to turn many away from the emptiness of their sin and shows them the delight of living a life for God. And so I ask you this morning, do you study that truth? Do you speak that truth first to yourself and then to others? And as a result, has it affected your life? Does it bring life and peace and righteousness? And are you so captivated by the change that God has wrought in you that you cannot help but share that? with others. God's ministers, God's people love God so much that they want to know him, they want to be like him, and they want to lead others to know and be like him. And so I ask, is our, our, is our pastor, are our elders, are you characterized by these three things? Because if not, where might we and where might you lead you? In his book, The Reformed Pastor, the Puritan Richard Baxter warns ministers, saying, can any reasonable man imagine that God should save men for offering salvation to others while they refuse it themselves? Many a tailor goes in rags and ma that maketh costly clothes for others, and many a cook scarcely licks his fingers when he hath dressed for others the most costly clothes dishes. 
In other words, don't trust a tailor in ragged clothes. And don't trust a skinny cook who has not regularly consumed his or her own cooking. And definitely do not trust a minister who is not saved. Put another way, do you and your elders practice what you preach? Do you know Jesus? Number one, do you and your elders study and speak truth? Now, many times I have heard a minister say as an excuse for not studying God's word, and I have never heard this from Josh. I'm just going to let the Lord lead. I'm just going to let the Lord lead. That sounds great, doesn't it? I want the Lord to lead. But they're saying saying it as if inspiration always comes without perspiration, right? Without sweat, without blood, without tears. How does one run a race or fight a fight or keep the faith without practice and preparation? Can it be done? Sometimes, by God's grace, more often, though, it comes through blood, sweat, and tears, through giving yourself wholly and completely to the task. Yet even that is not enough without the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon the work. Number two, do you you and your elders exemplify peaceful, holy living? Oh, God, help me with this one. This I have not completely sanctified yet, and I need to be better than I am. Are you contentious with questionable behavior? While talent and charisma may be optional for the minister, holiness is not. If your elders are not speaking studied truth or living peaceful, holy lives, then your elders have no right to lead you in the same. They cannot give you what they do not have. If they're not exhibiting these three characteristics of faithful ministry, albeit they're going to do it imperfectly, well, then they're not elders. In fact, they may be wolves in sheep's clothing. In verses 2 through 6, ministers should give honor to God's name. And then in verses 7 through 9, we see that ministers, secondly, should guard knowledge and lead others into God's truth. We see in verse 7 that a minister serves as a preserving agent of truth. It says, for the lips of a priest should guard knowledge. Some translations say preserve knowledge, and people, it says, should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But what an incredibly high calling, a calling that one dare not take lightly. God's minister serves as a guardian, as a sentry, as a watchman on the wall, warning of impending doom and preserving the knowledge of God in an often crooked and twisted generation. Now, the idea of a priest's lips guarding knowledge goes back to the previous verse where ministers are called to speak studied truth. Really, all of us are called to that in some form or fashion. We should be compelled to say what God has said or say nothing at all. We should not speak peace, peace, when there is no peace, as the false prophets spoke in Jeremiah 6.14 or Ezekiel 13, 16, just because that's the message that people want to hear. No, we should speak studied truth, whether that truth is popular or not. Ministers preserve knowledge. Sometimes that requires courage, but it always requires meditative study and consistent impartation, meaning that ministers teach knowledge to others. 
They're not meant to preserve knowledge in a vacuum, cloistered away from the world, keeping it to themselves like the Essene community who preserved the Dead Sea Scrolls. Rather, they are meant to preserve knowledge for the sake of communicating that knowledge to people, that people should seek instruction from his mouth, as verse 7 continues. If your minister guards the knowledge of God, you would do well to seek his instruction. For it says he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. As messengers, priests interpreted, heralded, and applied what had already been revealed through God's revelation. Meaning that they didn't bring a new word, they brought an old word. Now, they may apply it differently as times and circumstances change, but it's the same word with the same meaning. But in failing to interpret, herald, and apply God's word, we find that an unfaithful minister causes many to stumble in verse 8. It says, but you have turned aside from the way. You might say these ministers got off the road. They're wandering in the wilderness, and they're leading others astray in the process. As a result, it says, you've caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. Now, when something has been corrupted, it has been rendered somewhat useless, kind of like a cardboard box left out in the rain, right? Or a tomato plant eaten by deer, or a computer's motherboard plagued by viruses, or in this case, a minister who has corrupted God's covenant, breaking the word. The prophet Amos had previously warned of this coming judgment, saying, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. A famine of hearing the word of God. By Malachi's day, that judgment has come upon them. Steve Lawson, in a book by that same name, Famine in the Land, believes that that time has come upon us once again, where we find a shortage of faithful preaching, leaving those in the pews dangerously undernourished. In many ways, an unfaithful minister's ministry has been characterized by the very opposite characteristics of Levi's ministry in verse 6. You might say that, number one, an unfaithful minister studies something other than the truth or barely studies the truth, if he studies at all. And as a result, he ends up speaking half-truths or lies. Number two, an unfaithful minister maybe pretends at peaceful Holy living, characterized by some form of self-reliance or self-righteousness. Number three, an unfaithful minister, through studying and speaking something other than the truth, pretending at peaceful, holy living, characterized perhaps by some form of self-reliance or self-righteousness, leads others into the same. In other words, he leads them astray. And so we see in verse 9 that an unfaithful minister shall be despised. He says, and so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. 
because they served for gain, showing more concern for what they got out of the ministry than what they gave to the ministry, and showing partiality, God will despise them, allowing their witness, allowing their effectiveness to be destroyed. Oh, sure, they're probably going to continue to go through the motions, but they're going to be ineffective because they failed to keep God's ways. They did the very thing condemned in James chapter 2 by making distinctions among themselves, favoring some over others, perhaps paying attention to the wealthy and dismissing the poor. And this verse tells us that that people see through that. Just as important, they see through a minister who does not keep God's ways. This goes right back to verse 6 where where we see three characteristics of a faithful minister. Studying and speaking truth, exemplifying peaceful, holy living, and leading others into the same. We cannot tolerate anything less. For those of you who watched the Star Wars show, The Mandalorian, you may recall the oft-repeated phrase, this is the way. Mandalorian warriors hold to a certain, rigid, almost religious code of beliefs where they protect one another, they take care of orphan foundlings, and they never take off their helmets. If they violate this code, they are stripped of their armor and they are put outside the community. But even in this fictional ideology, there is a way back. There is a road to redemption. In like fashion, God, through his word, affirms certain beliefs and certain behaviors that constitute the way. These priests had lost their way. And there's only one way back. There's only one road to redemption. It is through the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the way. Where these priests fail, Jesus succeeds. He both honors God and preserves knowledge and even serves as the perfect sacrifice by his death on the cross, which pays for our sins. Out of the success of Jesus' high priestly ministry, he extends the priesthood to all believers, to all followers of him. This is the way. Earthly ministers will fail you. In fact, you will fail you. You and they are only successful insofar as you and they point to Jesus leading and being led into God's truth. Is it any wonder that our churches are in the condition that they're in nowadays? Is it any wonder that church attendance is on the wane? Is it any wonder that many refuse to come to Christ, Christ stating the hypocrisy of the church as their biggest roadblock. In many cases, the guards have left their posts, or at the very least, not guarded God's truth. As surely as our nation would descend into chaos, if word got out that we were wide open to to whatever and in anything goes fashion, so too have our churches descended into chaos for our anything goes mentality. Would we give honor to God by guarding knowledge and leading others into God's truth? Only through the mercy, only through the grace and help of Jesus can we do this. This is the way.